We're moving on from chapter 9 of the book of Revelation now to chapter 10. This is very interesting because we're left with uh, four trumpets that reveal the condition of mankind, two of the remaining three trumpets for a total of seven, two of the remaining trumpets have sounded, we've looked looked at what happens when they sound, and one trumpet is yet to sound. So we're inching closer to the completed narrative of of what happens when the age is uh, wrapped up. And of course, The age is wrapped up when the thing that God established to establish in the beginning uh, that He wished to accomplish by the creation of man, when that is finished. And this this, uh, chapter 10, as an overview, once more reminds us of how absolutely and totally God is in control of these events, that He releases, He allows, He has committed the release of these events into the hands of the Son, the Son has committed uh, these to, uh, to the, through His body, and the body is making these decrees, and the angels who are Listen, the angels were always the servants of man. So when the sons decree a matter, the angels carry it out. Or do you not remember that all angels are ministering servants? This from the book of Hebrews, the first chapter. They serve the Son. And we're seeing a different administration of how the angels serve the Son when it's time for the vindication of the faithful Son who has cried out to God, How long, O Lord, will you permit evil to rampage upon the earth? This chapter is really a wonderful sort of breather and a reset point, resetting us in the understanding of that original intent. I saw another, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and the left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders 
uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and earth and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in, in it, and the sea and the things that are in it. So, who created the heavens and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, the sea and the things that are in it, there sh- that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, and that's the one, the final one to sound, when he's about to sound, the mystery of God, specifically the mysteries of the intentions of God, will be finished as he declared it to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. When I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now, I want to point out certain things. There's so much in this chapter to be unpacked, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to touch things. I'm going to give you things, pieces and keys for you to think about. Um, Once again, This is going to be pulling together so many scriptures that you already know, showing you and revealing some of what is here. So he says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. All right. Mighty messenger. This one is fascinating in the way it's described, or he is described. Note the following descriptions. Clothed with a cloud. Well, that's the first clue. When Jesus ascended to heaven, Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the Bible is specific in that it says, and while they beheld speaking of the disciples of the Lord, 
were standing with him on the Mount of Olives on that day. And while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. In the book of Daniel, speaking, looking at that fact or that statement, that occurrence, from a prophetic viewpoint, it says, And I looked, and there was one like the Son of Man who came with the clouds of heaven. And in concerning the return of the Lord in Matthew 24, speaks of Him coming with the clouds of heaven. So this is a unique feature associated with this angel. He, he appears, comes with the clouds of heaven in a fashion reminiscent of the Lord Himself. But this isn't the return of the Lord. What we're seeing is the importance of this symbol and whatever is whatever he has been said to say or to do. This is it has the same characteristics as when Jesus would say, Verily, verily, I say unto you. So pay close attention to what this angel has to say and already you've gotten a glimpse into it because we read the chapter. This angel comes to securely announce the final epoch of things, the final stages of things. In specifics, the mystery of God the mystery of God is about to be finished. What is the importance of this? And and it's the mystery of God as He has declared to His servants the prophets. So what has been said and what we've been mining in the prophetic books, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Daniel, uh, even from the Lord Himself in Matthew 24 and here, Daniel speak, uh, uh, John speaking prophetically, he's saying, it's what God told the prophets. And we're about to see the summation of those things. So it requires this sort of sober, authoritative, um, reliable declaration. And why is this so? Because unless these days are shortened, no flesh would be saved alive. Distress coming upon the earth as had never been seen before. So, an angel has come whose testimony is consistent with the appearing of the Lord and therefore is designed to give us that level of absolute reliability uh, that 
is required in those times. So this is the picture that he's deliberately setting up. And and frankly, whether it's an actual angel that comes or it's a sound that comes from heaven through the prophetic, it is a sound that is critically important in as much as the times will have become so profoundly dark and desperate as we saw at the conclusion of the last chapter, at the conclusion of the ninth chapter. But look, other things remind you of Jesus about this angel. What else? A rainbow was on his head. Where did you run into the rainbow before? Well, you see it surrounding the four living creatures in heaven. You see a rainbow encircling the throne. What is the rank of this messenger then? Highest of the ranks, reliable servant of God who has come to bring this message. What is the point of a rainbow anyway? Is there any value to the fact that the rainbow is around other than just how he appears? No, he's an announcer of the continuity of the covenant. Rainbow, the rainbow, was actually the earliest sign of a covenant that God made with himself, not to destroy mankind off the face of the earth, but to save a remnant of people. So righteous Noah was saved in the ark and the covenant that guaranteed his well-being as one deemed righteous for the continuing propagation of the race of the righteous on the earth God gave him a rainbow as a sign. The rainbow isn't just a sign that there won't be another flood or the world will not be destroyed in a flood. The rainbow is a sign given to Noah that God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked and that God will continue to move inexorably to fulfill the original intent of having a man in the image and likeness of God. So in that sense, the covenant is enduring and it's not just about the flood. That's why the covenant of the, or the, the sign of that covenant surrounds the throne of God because the, the power and the authority of the throne of God underwrites this outcome as the inevitable in creation irrespective of everything that inveighs against it throughout all of human history. So as it was in the days of Noah, it will be like that in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. As there's a rainbow that preserved, that was a sign that you could trust 
that God will preserve the righteous. So there's a rainbow around the throne telling us that the authority of God in creation depicted by the, by the throne and surrounded by a rainbow exists for the preservation of and the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant. It's one of those heaven and earth would pass away, but my word will not pass away declarations. And what else? This is, this is, a, this is a magnificent assurance to the people of God. What else? So there's a cloud, um, a veiling as it were, a rainbow that carries the incidences of covenant on his head. His face was like the sun. The glory of God. He's resplendent in the glory of God. We can unpack that much further. And his feet like pillars of fire. Jesus was described by John in the book of Revelation early on and in uh, in the book of uh, Ezekiel early on, uh, in the early chapters of Ezekiel, as feet, as having feet like burnished bronze, highly refined and polished bronze as refined by fire. And of course, feet like pillars of fire would indicate clean, feet were clean, refined. So wherever he stepped, the authority of God would be in that place. So whether he was on the land or on the sea, and this may be a reference both to the sea of humanity and the certainties of the things of God to be accomplished among mankind. God takes great, goes to great length to accredit him, to accredit this messenger. He had a little book open in his hand. You'll remember that there was that the, the lamb seated upon the throne had what? A scroll in his hand. What else? He cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. I heard the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome and is worthy to open the scrolls or open the seals. The depiction of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah is clearly in keeping with the presentation of this angel. And then this other, now when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Seven, of course, the number of complete completion, thunders, the voice of God is like thunder. God speaks out of the thunder. In fact, um, when he spoke at the baptism of Jesus, it was as if it thundered from heaven. 
when he spoke at the, uh, uh, in the Mount of Transfiguration and again when he spoke on the road to Damascus, they could only say that they heard a voice but saw no man and some, would, some considered it a voice like thunder, like a thunder. So it speaks with the authority, the completeness of the voice of God, seven thunders. And needless to say, that's why the, the, the expression that in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. I am impressed, frankly, with the, I mean we should always be impressed with God, but I'm impressed with how finely God means to show us that His Word will never pass away, that heaven and earth may pass away, but His Word will not pass away. And what Jesus said, not a jot or a tittle, not a stroke, or an inflection will be diminished until it is all fulfilled. Why is this so important? Because we need to know that we can rely on what God has told us. Why is that important? Because that's how we live. We do not live on bread alone, We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is the criticality of this understanding and why does God accredit this angel so thoroughly as one who actually appears like or is in in appearance like the Son of God in His glory and in His function such a reliable messenger. It's about how God intends to communicate with us in these times that um, if we tried to live by the dictates of human wisdom, if we tried to live by speculation and conjecture, Deception is the order of the day. Jesus many times told us, take heed that no one deceives you. Though we or an angel from heaven, Paul once said, should preach to you any other gospel than that which you've received, let him be accursed, and he repeated himself let him be accursed if we preach any other gospel. So God is going through this extremely careful, intentional, deliberate process to accredit the messenger of the covenant by associating him intentionally with the divine personage of God Himself. Now, John was about to write what the seven thunders were saying. 
and he was told to seal it up, seal up what was uh, in the seven thunders and do not write them. Why? Because in the day that is the work of the Holy Spirit. He will take of what belongs to Jesus, whose voice is the seven thunders, the completeness. God speaks to us in Son. He used to speak to us in the times past by the prophets, now He speaks to us in the Son. And the Son speaks to us who are assembled into His person by the Holy Spirit. So the seven thunders were reserved for the decrees of the Holy Spirit in the day. Man does not live on bread alone, he lives by what God says to him in the day. Manna, you see, appeared in the day. And we will have hidden manna, the speakings of God to the body of Christ by reliable messengers of the covenant typified by this angel so that we will not walk in darkness and we will not be afraid. And the declarations will be that which is consistent with what He has spoken before and have been recorded in the Word by the prophets. Now there's an interesting aspect to this and I'll move very quickly through it because I want to go on to the two witnesses of chapter 11 when I resume these broadcasts. This angel had a little book in his hand and an instruction from heaven to John was, go and take the little book out of his hand. The, this is not unlike the lamb taking the scroll out of the hand of he who sat upon the throne. What God wants us to understand is that these things aren't for angels and these things aren't even for God Himself. These sayings of God aren't for angels, these sayings of God aren't even for God Himself. These sayings of God are for us. You know, if you imagine yourself in the position of John and this angel has his book in his hand, uh, this is a pretty intimidating scene to be told, go and take the book out of his hand. We could readily see humans recoiling from that in the same way that Israel recoiled from the presence of God when He came down on Mount Sinai in the days of Moses. But no, these words are for us. God always wants us to receive the Word of the Lord, especially since it's the food of our spirits. Go and take the little book. This little book is sweet in the mouth and bitter in the, in the belly and inasmuch as the instruction was to go and eat the book. Prophecy, knowing the ways of God, are sweet to the spirit of man, to the understanding of man.
walking out the prophecies is what is often bitter. Here is, the, here is this comparative analogy. It's about the cross of Jesus and all that had been written about Him in the books, books of prophecy. It says, for the joy that was set before Him, that's sweet, He endured the cross, that's bitter, despising the shame. It's sweet and bitter in this. The sweetness is that it speaks to the time beyond the bitterness. So Jesus endured the cross, why? Because of the joy that was set before Him. He knew that His destiny was to be raised from the dead and to be seated at the right hand of God far above all rule and authority and every title that may be given, not only in the present age but in the one to come, and to be made head over all things in creation for the church, which is His body. That's the sweet portion. And that requires you to believe in what has been said and to believe in the one who has been sent to say it. If you believe, then you'll fix your eyes, according to 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, while you're in this house of mortal clay, groaning to be clothed with your heavenly dwelling, the light and momentary trials will not deter you. You fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen because what is unseen, or what is seen is temporal, what is unseen is eternal. Brethren, I'm describing a way of life, how you handle prophetic utterances, how you are supposed to live in them, how you are to eat them and be sustained in the sweetness of them, but in your flesh, in your flesh, Scripture is often bitterly fulfilled. So don't believe these charlatans who tell you that it's about living your best life now in your flesh. They're liars and deceivers and theirs is a doctrine of demons. Your flesh will often experience the bitterness of the experience associated with the promise that brings you into triumphant, into the triumphant reality inasmuch as you are caught up with God, caught up to His throne, which is one of the things we'll talk about, about the son of the woman who is about to be devoured by the devil, by the dragon, who's caught up to the throne of God. We live out of what God has said to us. We live out of the reality of His authority, His power. It's what Paul told us as his reason for writing the book of Ephesians, that you might know what is the hope of your calling, or what is, that you might know what is the hope of His calling, what is His glorious inheritance in the saints who believe, what is the working of His mighty power on behalf of those 
who believe, which is like what he worked when he raised Christ up from the dead. That's all involved in this picture of the little book. These are the realities. This, you see, is what God, knowing the end from the beginning, has gone ahead of us to lay up in store so that when it's the time, there will be nothing missing, nothing lacking, we'll be short in nothing. That's what this angel coming down uh, from heaven, looking like and functioning like a type of Jesus Christ Himself, like the Lamb Himself, who gives this book that tells John that it's going to be bitter and sweet and then ends by saying this, and He said to me, you must prophesy again, which means what? It was prophesied previously. What is the little book? The little book is a little book of prophecy, prophecy that has been spoken before. And when you eat it now, when you ingest it now, it will revive your understanding of it and you will prophesy again. That is to say, you'll prophesy with fresh relevance out of ancient things, because does not a man bring forth from his treasure house things old and new? The relevance of the Scriptures will be updated and it will be the old things prophesied again. The startling, brilliant, relevance, like food from heaven, and we'll prophesy again about, not to, but about the subject matter as opposed to the subject. You're not not going to prophesy to people, you're going to prophesy about the subject matter. You're going to prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues and kings. Why? Because that's the prophecy that God calls out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation and kings, He calls a people. And and because that's the gathering, this isn't the evangelizing that has been done, this is about the maturing that has been done and it's consistent with what has been sealed and what is being sealed. This is reaping the crop this isn't planting the seed, this isn't the day of sowing, this is the day of confirmation that the crop that has been sowed has been gathered in maturity. Now we'll move on next to chapter 11 where there's a measuring Prophetic, the prophet is given a standard by which to measure the temple of God, which is the naos, as opposed to the outer court of the Gentiles. The habitation of God is to be measured. The altar is to be measured, where the saints are under the altar, 
and the people of God are to be measured. And that is to determine what fits the standard because the canon, the canon, the rod is a measuring tool outside are dogs and whoremongers and those who believe and make a lie. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord. Not every church go. And not everyone who once said, uh, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. There's a measuring. It's a measuring that's going on. The measuring is by a standard. Standard of divine righteousness will separate the sheep from the goats, to use another analogy. These are strict things. These are hard things. God is not running a popularity contest to see if how many humans love Him. He's gathering from the earth that which bore His image and likeness. That's all that matters to Him. The rest never had any value beyond that anyway. Don't be deceived by this age. Draw near to God. Have a heart to be conformed to the Son of God. Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. I commend you to God and to these hard things. You'll find Him in these places when you'll seek for Him with all your heart. He doesn't exist to amuse you. He doesn't exist to give you whatever whim you can conjure up. You'll find me, Jesus said, when you shall search for me with all your heart. The way is narrow, the gate is straight, strict, narrow. For straight is the gate and narrow is the way. All your whims and thoughts, what's important to you, do not matter even slightly to the living God. What matters to Him? are the things that He has determined matters to Him. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. I say it again, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you. He's never going to simply put up with immaturity and foolishness. 
That's not what he established creation to have, an immature, foolish people. He established creation to reap a people in the image and likeness of the one he sent to conform us to his standard. Grace and peace be with you. I'm Sam Solon. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye.